Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I've been reading all these articles because as I was looking at our passage, when Paul says to Timothy, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Why do we have perilous times? Why? Because men are lovers of themselves. Narcissism is dangerous. It is lethal to those who are around a narcissist. I I was thinking about, you know, we've got world events. Putin, is he thinking about his soldiers? 8,000 have already died. Is he thinking about his soldiers? Is he, does he have any empathy for the people in the Ukraine? bombing their houses, taking away their food, blowing up bridges so they can't escape. Is there any thought for the welfare of those people? Or is it about Putin making a name for himself? He's dangerous because of narcissism. Unfortunately, narcissism articles are saying it's on the rise. It's not just outside the church, in the world around us as if we can come in here and be totally safe from narcissism. It's all around us and even in the church. Um, Personally, I've seen it in many pastors. In the epistle of Peter, Peter speaks of those who want to be pastors for the sake of dishonest gain. Dishonest gain is not just money, but popularity and power and perks. There are many articles on narcissism. I read about five of them and then just couldn't take it anymore. But now they're calling it a disorder. Can you believe that? We used to just call it pride, conceit, and now it's, bless their hearts, they've got a disorder. They call it narcissistic personality disorder. But you know what's interesting about narcissistic personality disorder? Psychologists don't want to deal with them. In fact, the way psychologists deal with them is to try to talk them, without offending them, into going to a different psychologist. (laughs) They pass them off because narcissists are 90% more likely than any other personality to sue you. And to sue you over something that is, you know, minute. It's the narcissist. I have a um, book at home on my shelf because of... um, just being a pastor's wife, it came in very handy. And it's called Coping with the Narcissist. Because I kept meeting these certain people in the church, and I was just saying, what's going on? And I was at the bookstore. My brother told me to read The Sociopath Next Door. So I got that book, too. I, interesting library at my house. You'll find it right next to Javern and McGee. But as I was, you know, looking at these books and I got to, I saw, well, coping with the narcissist, I was reading the back and I thought, I've met this person. It's interesting because you're reading it and you're like, I think I know this person. And I began to kind of compare it to a lot of people that I've seen. It's important to be prepared for these types of people and to know that They are around us and even in the church, and they're swindlers. 
Paul said in Colossians 2, 8 and 18, speaking to the Colossians, do not let anyone cheat you or, or take away or, or deceive you. You know, by, by robbing your joy or robbing your faith or taking away from that, giving you something else, an imitation. And, and one of the best ways is to, to be prepared for the Im, imitation to be prepared for the narcissist is one, to know that they exist. And then secondly, to be given the tools to recognize them or know what they're like and to know their tactics. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. By what they say, what they do, their attitudes. Paul predicted and prepared Timothy when he wrote 2 Timothy chapter 3, telling Timothy that narcissism would increase, creating perilous times, increase or intensify. He also wrote Timothy on how to be prepared and even productive in such times. You know, our problem is we hear, oh, there's a narcissist and we want to shut down or we want to hide. But... Paul was telling Timothy, yes, those people are there. Yes, they are par for the course, but do not shut down. Do not back away. Keep doing what you're doing by the power of the Holy Scriptures. Paul prepares Timothy by revealing the attitudes, activity, and aftermath of the narcissists in the church telling them how to recognize and resist such people, and finally telling them to continue to spiritually thrive, how to spiritually thrive in an environment where these people exist. So beginning with verses 1 through 5, the attributes of the inauthentic. When the disciples asked Jesus about the last days, he said that one of the chief characteristics would be the proliferation of false prophets and messiahs. Now, there were approximately 40 false messiahs after Jesus um, resurrected and ascended to heaven. Uh, one was Barcoba, another was Bar-Jesus, uh, different ones that we know of from history. And each of these men claimed to be the messiah and they did so to draw a following, people after them. And that's what Paul predicted in Acts. He said, I know in Acts chapter 20, when I leave, there will be false prophets that will come in like ravenous wolves, trying to draw people away from fellowship and after themselves. Paul expounds on these false believers again in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, by citing some of their chief characteristics. And that was that they would be lovers of money or covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong. In other words, they won't listen to reason. You cannot correct them haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's interesting because it corresponds to what I read about narcissists. In an article written by Newsweek, it says that narcissists have an extreme sensitivity to any form of correction 
or criticism. Extreme sensitivity. Are you talking about me? Did you say that about me? They need constant affirmation and attention. And if the conversation isn't about them, they will drop right to them. They have a lack of empathy. They cannot feel sorry for anybody. They might talk like they do, but they can't actually feel someone else's pain. They have a deep-rooted belief that they are unique and therefore deserve more than what they currently have. They deserve more popularity. They deserve more fame. They deserve more love. They deserve more money. They deserve more friends. They deserve more attention. They're also vengeful. You, You cross a narcissist and they will come back at you harder, faster, stronger. They're envious and they often feel like they are victims. Victims, like, I did the same thing and nobody said yay to me. This is how they are. It sounds so much like what Paul was describing about these people. When he says unforgiving, or another translation is truce breakers. In other words, they cannot be trusted to keep their word. Slanders or false accusers, and I think of all over YouTube, how supposedly Christian pastors are slandering other Christian pastors. What's with that? What is with that? I mean, what does that say to the world when we're saying, oh no, they, you know, they, they're not really, um, they're woke, or they're, they're this, or they're that. When they're saying things like that, What is that saying to the world that's watching and looking? Is that saying, Jesus is real, Jesus is love, you need to come to Jesus, he can forgive you of sins. When the pastors on YouTube or Facebook or whatever their medium are not promoting the love of Jesus Christ and not drawing men to Jesus, you know what they're doing? They're repelling. They're repelling, and that goes into the area of blasphemers. Because this word blasphemers actually means that they're embarrassing the Lord. It's more than just like cursing the Lord. It doesn't mean that. It means that they're doing things that make God look bad. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's, have you ever been with a Christian that you want to say, this, this, isn't, this isn't me. This isn't Christianity. I remember I was, I had this woman for a while who was stalking me. This is when I lived in Vista. And I went to the mall, and she's like, Cheryl, what are you doing here? And I'm like, she's following me. Here she is. And so I was like trying to be nice. And so she's like, I need some makeup. I need you to come with me. I go over to the makeup counter, and she asks for something that is water-based. I still remember because it was so traumatic. Water-based. And the girl goes, oh, no, we only have oil-based. I'm so sorry. She's like, you liar. Why is it you're picking on me? Why don't you like me? I know that you get minimum wage and you think you're all, I mean, just ripping into this poor girl. I'm sitting there going. You know, I didn't know what to do. I, I, and I was like, I, I don't feel this way. I don't like what she's doing. I am so sorry, but you couldn't say that. 
because she's too busy saying these terrible things. And you know what it was? It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. I, I wanted to go back to that girl and say, I am so, so sorry. I, I don't know what her issue is. You know, I think she's got mental problems. She follows me around and shows up in my driveway. She did. But you know, these people, that's how we tell them. That's how we recognize. Are they unforgiving? Are they truce breakers? Can they be trusted? Is your name safe in their mouth? Are they slanderous? Are they accusing falsely and even, are they accusing people without self-control? They can't keep their mouths shut. They can't be kind. They can't be patient. They're brutal. They're despisers of what is good, like love and grace. One such person on YouTube, and I'm quoting, I'm tired of hearing all about grace. When are Christians going to get some grit? Traitors, or another word is treacherous, they're dangerous, headstrong, reckless, insist on their own way even if it's destructive to themselves or others, haughty, arrogance. This is the third time that he's mentioned, you know, lovers of self, he's talked about pride, but hear this word haughty, it actually means swollen with conceit. Tim Keller in his book, Self-Forgetfulness, he said, a translation of this is they're full of gas. So that you know when you're bloated how anything hurts. And, and when, even if your skin is bloated, you're more sensitive to pain. Uh, and that's what brings this extra sensitivity, this defensiveness, this thinking, you know, people are talking about them. And then it says they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think of how many Christians to whom church on Sunday mornings is an inconvenience. They don't want to be put out. It's so much easier um, to stay at home or stay in your comforts than to you know, go out having to dress up, maybe even shower Get up early. We had one woman that was so upset when we changed the church times. Just so upset. That was it. She wasn't going to go to church anymore here because we changed the times of the services. I mean, seriously. Is that what church is about? For our convenience? Or are we so blessed? Don't you think those Ukrainians would love to be at church right now? And be able to fellowship and meet with other Christians and hear the word of God? I think of the people who are missing church because Sunday is their day to ski, surf, sleep in, watch television. We've lost that appreciation for church. We've been led. We've been led away. It says they have a form of godliness, and this is what makes them so dangerous. They look like believers. They talk like believers at times, but they live in their own strength and in their own desires and their own comforts so that they never grasp the power of God working in them. You know, God takes us out of our comforts, doesn't he? He takes us way out of what we feel comfortable with. He calls us to deny ourselves constantly. Deny ourselves. You know, 
I read this book by Amy Carmichael, and she talked about every day she tried to do something that denied herself. And she talked about how Christians like to keep self-denial in, you know, way up here, like, I denied myself. You know, when it's in the little things, you know, we might say, well, I did not, you know, I don't know, eat hamburgers today. I'm denying myself. But did you see your husband left a glass out? And you were just like, I'm going to leave that glass out. It's time he learns not to leave glasses out. Or did you just put it in the dishwasher? Did you just wash it and say, you know, I'm so glad I can do this for him. You know, Brian and I have this thing. He just started making the bed about a year ago. Just started making it. I'm like shocked. It's like, he made the bed. He doesn't make it very good. But he makes it. And I'm so proud. I give him a big E for effort. I mean, he tries. And so I never go, oh, I do the pillows like that. It's like, I can straighten the pillows. He made the bed. You know, hallelujah. It's just so, you know, wonderful. But, you know, we get just so wrapped up. And we we see these others, well, they're not denying themselves. Why should I have to deny myself? If they get that, I should get that. You see, that's why these people are so dangerous, because it's infectious. It's infectious. It only takes, you know, if 30 people are denying themselves, and one person says, hey, I'm not going to deny myself, all of a sudden you start seeing the others going in that same pattern. They never grasp the power of God working in them. It's when we're denying ourselves. It's when we're doing the uncomfortable, the inconvenient, that you feel the power of God working in you. It's those times. I think about the disciples, that they're so tired. They've been ministering and ministering for Jesus. And Jesus says, come away to a quiet place. And what happens? The multitude, over 5,000, just we're only counting men here, 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So you probably had something more closer to 10 or 12,000 people just following Jesus. The disciples are tired. And Jesus takes them up on this mountain. What happens? The disciples um, are followed by all these people. And Jesus turns to Philip and he says, where are we going to get food to feed all of these? And Philip, I think he's just already stressed. He's like, what? Are you kidding me? If I worked for a whole year, and even if food was convenient, there's not enough to feed these people. And Jesus says to these tired disciples, you feed them. Like, he intends, you feed them. (laughs) With what? And Andrew's like, I I found this little kid. He's got this little kid's lunch. There are five, they make a point of this, five small loaves and, you know, two little fish. What is that among such a multitude? Jesus says, Bring it, bring it to me. He said, You go organize them into groups of 50. And then he has the disciples take this food and they give it to the people sitting down. It wasn't when they were feeling refreshed, energetic, or even spiritual that God used them to feed the multitudes. It's when they're burned out, when they're emotionally drained, when they're physically tired, when they're spiritually just need a break, that God says, all right, I want to 
show you how to feed the multitudes. I want to show you it is in these times. And if we're always only doing what's in our strength, what's in what they say, toolbox, because I only learned these phrases from my kids and I hope I get them right. I was going around saying they were dishing me, just dishing me. Um, my brother Chuck's, I mean, my son Char's like, what do you say, mom? I'm saying, you know, they dished me, like they left me with all the dishes. He's like, no, mom, they dissed you. They dismissed you. Oh, dismissed, not dish. No, mom, not dish. So I've been hearing this phrase. It's not in my toolbox. So I hope I'm getting it right. And I hope it doesn't mean something other than the way I'm using it. Because that can happen too. But you know, people only living in your comfort zone, you'll never feel the power of God. Only living in what you can do, you'll never feel the power of God. That's what these narcissists do. They live only in their comforts. They never know the power of God. They never know the love of God coming through, loving, feeling for others because they're lovers of self. And their activity, it says they worm their way into houses or into a person's life or affections. And they take captives. They create followers. They prey on gullible women. They're looking for weaknesses. I believe that these women... Um, they're vulnerable, especially because of their own desires. Various lusts. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the lusts are bad because we as women, we need affirmation. And then especially as you age, you, you need that affirmation. You, you know how it is, you who are aging, that you know when you were young, you used to get that attention. They, the guys would come right up to your table and say, can I get you some water? What's your order? Now you're watching them take the orders of all the younger tables and just, I'll be with you, hold on. You know, it's just not the same. They don't rush over to bag your groceries anymore. They don't open the door for you. You don't get like, woo, anymore. Not that I ever did, but you did, just once or twice. But still, it's just a different world. And we do need affirmation. We do need to know that we're still loved, that we're still wanted, that we're still needed. And they prey on that. They prey on that. I've said this before. The false teachers, false prophets, they use virtues for vice. Everybody needs love. They will sometimes exploit love to bring you in because they're predators, they're seducers, they're exploiters. And it says that they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're never able to truly know the Lord. And in fact, they even resist truth. When you give them a scripture, they say, that's not what it means, uh, or that doesn't apply to me, or you don't know the Greek. It says they resist truth, like Jonas and Jambres in the court of Pharaoh. What did Jonas and Jambres do? Whenever Pharaoh did a miracle, Jonas and Jambres, these magicians in Pharaoh's court, they imitated it, which I think is really stupid because you already have a problem with fleas. Why add to it? Like, we can make fleas too. You know, when they had a problem with frogs, we can do frogs too. 
they just acerbated the problem, Jonathan Jambres. And even though they saw firsthand the miracles of God through Moses and Aaron and tried to imitate them, came to their limits, could not imitate uh, the plague on the cows, thank God. They couldn't do some of these other things like bring the darkness. And even when they acknowledged to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the real God. This is something that we've never seen or never felt. This is real. They didn't change what they were doing. They didn't change resisting. They didn't repent. They didn't receive the truth. They continued to support Pharaoh in his resistance to God. Paul says that these men, their minds grow more corrupt. They, they get worse and worse. It, it's like mold. It just continues to grow and to attach itself to everything. Paul says they're disapproved concerning the faith. They're disqualified. God does not sanction them or approve of them. I think of all the false prophets that in Jeremiah, God is always saying, I'm not with them. In fact, to the point that the false prophets would say, the burden of the Lord. And God said, don't use that phrase. Don't use that phrase. Let that be the phrase of the false prophets. Don't you ever say the burden of the Lord because my word is a delight. The aftermath, and they have an end. They have an end. They, they only have a limited engagement. They're popular now, but they will be stopped by God. They are on a time limit. I have this theory that everyone gets an hour of power. That I'm not quoting um, Robert. Schuler, but everyone has this, this time where they become influential, a time when they're kind of popular, a time when they have a following. And what do you do during that hour? What are you going to do with that hour? When you have the advantage, what do you do with that advantage? Do you serve God or do you serve yourself? What do you do with that advantage? Everyone gets just this certain time. It says that their folly will be exposed to all. Everyone will see it. So Paul moves on to the protection. He contrasts these men with godly men. Paul told Timothy to note the difference between his own life and their life. Those men took, and Paul gave. Paul also says to note the difference in his doctrine or what he taught as opposed to what they taught. His manner of life compared to their lifestyle. His purpose, his end goal in life as opposed to their goal in life. Paul wanted to make disciples to Jesus. Those men want to make disciples to themselves. Faith, note the difference in faith, what these men believe and what Paul believed. Note the long-suffering. What is their patient level as compared to Paul? What have they endured compared to what Paul endured? The hireling sees the wolf and he flees. But Paul is a shepherd, 
an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ, stayed, endured, had worried about the first, the first Thessalonians and the second Thessalonians, had wanted to get back to the Thessalonians when he knew they were under persecution. And then Paul said, note his love, which is a true sign, the truest sign of authentic faith. 1 Corinthians 13, or think about Galatians 5, 22. My dad used to say, the fruit, it's singular, of the spirit is love. And joy, peace, long-suffering, self-control, kindness, gentleness, goodness, meekness, all of those were attributes of love. But the fruit of the spirit, the, the way to see is do they love? Perseverance. Again, a shepherd versus a hireling, John 10. Where are they in crisis or when things get tough? Do they run in or do they run away? Persecutions and afflictions. Paul, Paul, Paul pointed out that his perseverance, even in persecution, was a sign of authenticity. Perhaps you remember 2 Corinthians 11 when the Corinthians were saying, well, what are your credentials? And Paul says, you want to know my credentials? I keep going even when I'm shipwrecked, when I'm beaten, when I'm lacking sleep, when I'm hungry, when I don't have the right clothes, I keep ministering. Paul mentions the events that happened in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Lystra where he was stoned and left for dead outside of the city. But Paul got up and said, let's get going to the next city. And Paul said another sign was that God delivered him out of each of those calamities. God's divine deliverance, God's presence with us. We used to sing a hymn, he is able to deliver me. And that's what Paul knew, and that was authentication of his ministry. Paul then reminded Timothy in verse 13, he said, no, that all that live godly will suffer persecution. All who live godly. It's not one of my favorite scriptures, but it's something so vitally important. If you truly live a godly life, you will not escape persecution. If you truly do something of value for God, you will not escape persecution. I think of Mary in John chapter 12, when she anoints the feet of Jesus, Mary of Bethany. And there she is. She's doing this beautiful act. She's broken her alabaster box. It's expensive. Uh, she could have saved it for herself and used it to support herself for the rest of her life. It was worth a whole year's earnings, somewhere in our modern-day market of $100,000. And she took it and she broke it and poured it out on Jesus' feet. And we know that Judas instigated it. He said, why this waste? But we're told in John chapter 12 that all the disciples begin to join in. And it says this, they criticized her sharply. There is nothing more painful than to hear someone that you've admired who is godly or you thought was godly criticizing you sharply, misunderstanding your love and your worship for Jesus. This is what she heard. But I think about Mary. Even as they're criticizing her sharply, she didn't stop anointing the feet of Jesus. 
She didn't go, Peter, that isn't very nice. Or Andrew, Andrew, you too? You should have known. I love Jesus. I'm, I want to bless Jesus. She just kept her eyes on Jesus' feet and kept to the task. Even Mary of Bethany suffered persecution. She didn't escape it, and it was in her worship of Jesus. We won't escape it. Persecution is a sign of authenticity. It means we're doing something right, not something wrong. There's a poem that I love by Amy Carmichael that's called, Hast Thou No Scar? I want to read it to you. No hidden scar on foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul also wanted Timothy to be aware that evil men will grow worse and worse. It's just par for the course. They will be deceiving many, but limited success. And it says that not only will they deceive, but they'll become deceived themselves. They actually begin to believe the lies. At first, they were lies, and they knew the difference. And then they tell them so often and so much that they don't know the difference, that they don't even know what truth is anymore. It says that they will grow more deceptive and deceive themselves so that they don't even know how to make their way back. What's the protection and productivity, 14 and 16? Again, here's the contrast. But you, but you, Continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And I love this because he begins, who did Timothy learn from? It says, and from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Who taught Timothy the Scriptures when he was a child? You got it, girls. His mom and grandma. Grandma. His mother and grandma taught him the Holy Scriptures. My dad said that his mother used to follow him around their backyard, getting him to memorize Scripture. He was hyperactive, so she'd put him outside and follow him around as he climbed trees and hopped over fences and said, Chuck, do you have that one yet? He could read by the time he was four because of my grandmother. My grandmother, you probably know this story, that she dedicated him to the Lord when she was um, pregnant, saying, Lord, if you give me a boy, this child is all yours, and I will raise him to be yours. And so she followed him all around, teaching him the scriptures. And Paul says, and you've been assured of. You, you knew it. The Holy Spirit bore witness to your heart, knowing those that you learn them, know, knowing those that taught you. Again, Paul calls to mind the faith of Eunice, the faith of 
Lois that he mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy had been taught from his youth the Holy Scriptures. It was God's word. It was God's word. From my youth, I also have been taught the Holy Scriptures. And they always brought me back. They always realigned and they centered me. I remember being so upset one time that I, had, I was required to memorize Psalm 139. Required, you know, resented it. Now I am so thankful that I know Psalm 139 by heart, albeit in the old King James. But I know it by heart. And there's something to knowing and memorizing the scriptures and knowing that they're truth. They continued and they continued to hold me during times of disillusionment, disappointment, disaster, and heartache. Paul said to Timothy, the scriptures are able to make you wise. Um, when Char was, I think, six or seven, he was in class. His teacher was a Christian. But he, he got in trouble, and he was in the principal's office, and all we knew that he was in trouble, and we go to pick him up in the principal's office, and we're like, Char, what happened? He goes, the teacher was teaching, because he used to lisp, false doctrine. And I told her that false doctrine, you could get in trouble with Jesus for that. And we said, what did she say, you know? And he said, she said that when we got to heaven, we were all going to get spanked. And I said, no, when we get to heaven, we're not going to get spanked. My dad said, said that there are going to be presents for all of us in heaven. And he, and he goes, right, Dad? What's that scripture that said that? And so Brian said, you know, you're right. It does say it. And he started reading, you know, Charles, some of the scriptures. And Charles like, that's the one I was talking about. He goes, Dad, she's teaching false doctrine. You got to get to her. And sure enough, when Charles said that, no, he said to the kids, she's not right. We're going to get presents in heaven. My dad said, and he knows the Bible. She got so upset, she sent her to the principal's office. I did not care for that teacher. He knew the Holy Scriptures. He didn't know it exactly. He couldn't tell you the chapter or the verse, but he knew. Even as a child, he knew. And it made him wise to salvation. Scripture gives us wisdom. I used to think of Psalm 119 when I was in school. I love Psalm 119. I believe it's 99 and 100. In Psalm 119, it says, You have made me wiser than all my teachers because your word is with me. You have made me even wiser than the ancients. That's how I felt about the philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, because I have your word. It's able to make us wise. Psalm 19.7 tells us that God's word makes us wise. Matthew 13.12 and 25.29 tells us the more that we know of the scripture, the more we will be given. Hebrews 5.14 tells us that the more we use the scripture, the more discernment we will have. It says that discernment is given to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern and know good from evil. The more you read and study and talk about the scriptures, the more you'll be given, the more insights you'll have, the more you'll be able to know the scriptures. 
and the more discerning you will be. See, Scripture is a protection. Paul tells us that all Scripture, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God or God-breathed. Think about it. God breathed into Adam, and he became a living being. So God blew into these prophets and writers his breath, his living word. Somebody explained it like this. They said that instruments like the trumpet or the clarinet, the wind instruments, right? They all have a different sound, but they're all playing the same tune. You see, they'll all play Amazing Grace, and it's all by wind flowing through them, but it each has this unique sound. We call this plenary inspiration. In other words, God doesn't change the way the prophet talks or his voice. It's still the same prophet that wrote it down, but God breathed into it. And he breathed into him like he was playing the tuba. And he breathed into this one like it was the saxophone. But it was the same amazing grace coming from each instrument, all 40 authors of the Bible. God breathed into them, and each one of them played amazing grace. It came out through each of them. Paul says that it's profitable or it's advantageous for doctrine. And doctrine, again, you know, means teachings. It's profitable to know what we believe about God, about sin, about the world, about the gospel, about salvation, for reproof or the standard for life. In other words, this word reproof in the group in the Greek means the the thing by which something is tested. It's the standard, the measuring stick that we measure, like some of the things we hear in the world, world, does this measure up with God? I have this friend, um, Patty, that I met, excellent lady, but she was talking about, she was living with her girlfriend. Um, They were lesbians, and they were like, one day totally convicted and said, you think God's okay with the way we live? And they just started talking about it. And suddenly, out of nowhere, they had this hunger for God. And they all of a sudden weren't feeling right about the way they were living. So they started living platonically in this house and started going to this church. And Sunday after Sunday, nothing was mentioned about it. And they were like, is this okay? Is this not okay? So they decided to make an appointment with the pastor. So they go in, and they said, we're lesbians. He's like, okay. But we've been coming to church. Okay. So you haven't said anything about it? He goes, no. They're like, well, then is God okay with it? He goes, no. They're like, well, what do we do? And he says, you need to be born again. God will give you a new heart, new desires. Be born again. And they were born again. And they were absolutely changed. And they started... um, They started a a help group for those who were struggling with homosexuality. But it was the standard. What did the pastor take them to? He took them to the word of God. This is what the word says. Because the world is always saying something different than what the word says. And so we have to go back because the word is good for reproof. It's the measuring rod. It's good for correction. And this word correction in the Greek means to realign us with God, which really is correction, right? But to realign us with God. And then instruction in righteousness. 
or how to be right with God by way of reminder, because you haven't seen me in a week. When the Bible speaks of righteousness, it is not speaking of moral integrity or even moral uprightness, but about rightness with God. So the Bible tells us how to be right with God. And the way to be right with God is not by keeping the law, but by receiving Jesus Christ and believing in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus, we are made right with God. Then the word of God is able to thoroughly equip us or give us everything we need so that we lack nothing. The word of God is able to safeguard us, prepare us, explain what's going on, and give us all we need to know. I remember um, being in England, and my parents, I had visited, and they were leaving. And on that trip, my mom kept saying these ominous things, like, I don't think I'll ever be in England again. And the kids are looking at me, and they're like, Grandma, why are you saying that? I don't know. It's just a feeling. And we're all like crying because she keeps saying this. So, you know, we're like, don't die. She lived to 96. So she didn't die. Our prayers were effective. But I remember that she, she kept um, saying that. And when they left, I was crestfallen. I, I remember saying to the Lord, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? When she's leaving, Lord, I love my mom. Why am I here? And I was in my personal devotions in Colossians chapter 3. I was asking the Lord why. And it said, you know, seek those things that are above. For when Christ, who is our life, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, stop there. You're here, you're doing this because Christ is your life. Because your life centers around Christ. It doesn't even center around what makes you comfortable or makes you happy. It centers around me, around the Messiah. And that's why you're doing this. It, he just explained it to me. And I found so many times when I'm confused, when I don't know the why or even what I'm feeling, when I go to the word, I'm like, aha. It's like this aha moment. Like, I could have had a V8. I could have had a scripture. It's like it explains it to me. Thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped. Having all that we need for all that God wants to do in and through our lives. Ephesians 2.10 um, tells us that God has already foreordained all the good works that we should walk in. And I don't want to miss any of those good works. And the word of God equips me, helps me, directs me, aligns me so that I am fully equipped for whatever comes my way, whatever God brings into my life. I'm equipped. I'm equipped to discern. I'm equipped to continue, to contrast, to stay and be aligned with the Lord. I'm equipped. And Timothy, as a young pastor who was about to leave his mentor, lose his mentor, his father in the faith, Paul wanted him to be assured, Timothy, you can continue to lead. You can continue to do this because by the word of God, you have everything you need. You are totally equipped. 
So God, through his word and his teachers of the word, has given us all that we need in these perilous times to recognize the narcissist, thus preparing us to be equipped to discern, resist, fend off, and even be fruitful in spite of their efforts. We have the God-breathed word and the examples of godly men and women before us. And we must continually center ourselves in his word, resist the narcissists and their tactics. Be like those psychologists. Send them to another one. And continue in the great work of the Lord. Amen. I got through it with my jet lag, and you guys were so patient. Let's pray. Uh, that should be for you for being patient. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this word. I pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for your word, for the fellowship of the saints, for godly men and women. And Lord, that you would continue to equip us with all we need to thrive and be fruitful in the times in which we live. In Jesus' name.